love it. You know, they, um, I had been intending to upgrade and then when I was in New York. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the flagship Nike store and get like the latest, latest model. They don't make them anymore. They don't make the, the fly nets anymore? Well, they make fly nets, but they don't make the free fly nets. Oh, the, crap. The Nike free fly nets. So I think this might be the last model. Well, have to stock up. Yeah, I know what I'm doing this weekend. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 4 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and early-stage venture fund in Seattle. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I am a general partner at Wave Capital, an early-stage venture fund focused on marketplaces based in San Francisco. And we, as you know, are your hosts. Today, we are talking about the absolutely legendary Sequoia Capital. And because it would be inappropriate to try to cover Sequoia's immaculate history in just one episode, this is only part one. And typically, I try and throw out some stats in this section about why the company that we're covering on this episode is important. Well, today, I'm only going to throw out one. Since its founding in 1972, the firm has helped to catalyze companies that now represent $3.3 trillion of public market value. And for context, the entire NASDAQ is $10 trillion. It is, frankly, absolutely unbelievable that a single firm can be responsible for helping to create so much of our modern economy. David, this is bananas. Yeah. For comparison's sake, what did we say? Next, which is one of our A pluses, uh, we said generated a trillion dollars in uh, market cap value, uh, the next acquisition. So here we are talking about $3.3 trillion. Now, obviously, <laughs> it's a venture firm, not a company, but uh, this is one of the reasons I've been so excited to dive into this new category here on Acquired and can't wait to tell this history of Sequoia Capital. Absolutely. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added 
arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. So lastly, our limited partner bonus show this week was kind of a fun flip for me. David interviewed me on what is a startup studio and how does it work, and I dove into our process here at Pioneer Square Labs. If you want to listen and become a limited partner, you can get started with a seven-day free trial and listen right here in the podcast player of your choice by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm slash acquired. I promise it's very easy. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. Yep. All right, David, it's time. It's time. Let's do it. So one thing that is uh, oft forgotten these days, uh, because it's just a name and is like, uh, you know, reminds me of uh, the quote about fishes and water, uh, where, you know, you ask a fish, like, how's the water? And fish says, what's water? And that is that Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley because of silicon, <laughs> uh, even though it is mostly software these days uh, and the internet. So to set the stage for this episode, we need to rewind back to the origin of Silicon Valley and indeed silicon. So we go back to 1957 when, and this is really the moment I think you could argue when, when Silicon Valley, as we know it, both in terms of silicon and in terms of the concept was born. And that was when a group of eight employees leave a company called Shockley Semiconductor, Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory, and start a new company that ends up being called Fairchild Semiconductor. And this group of eight employees goes on to be known as the Traitorous Eight. And we'll uh, we'll link to in the show notes to this amazing photo, we'll link to the Wikipedia page uh, of these eight individuals. Uh, it's just so great. So 1957 in all the best ways. Why did these eight folks leave Shockley and, and start their own company. And this was a radical thing to do at, uh, at the time. Well, Shockley Semiconductor was started by Bill Shockley. And Bill was a genius. He was the co-inventor of the transistor uh, that he in, helped, helped invent when he was at Bell Labs. And for that, he won the 1956 Nobel Prize. Uh, I mean, he literally helped invent computing. But he did have a dark side. And that dark side was that he was a terrible manager and people hated working for him. Um, And to help you kind of get the picture uh, at this point in time and then for kind of the rest of his life, he became a white supremacist and was a proponent of eugenics. So this is the sort of uh, person we're talking about that would prompt people as brilliant as he was and as amazing as the innovation that was happening at Shockley would be prompted to maybe leave and do something uh, rash. So who are the traders eight? Well, among them, there's some names you might recognize, starting with Gordon Moore of Moore's Law and Bob Noyce, who, of course, the two of them would go on to found Intel, although that's a story for another day, and Eugene Kleiner, who would go on to help found Kleiner Perkins, which is another venture firm story for another day. But what was interesting is when they left and they started Fairchild, 
it wasn't actually a startup in the way that we think about it today. It wasn't an independent company. It ended up, they had a really tough time getting it financed. And so how it ended up being organized was as the West Coast Semiconductor Division of an East Coast company called Fairchild Camera and Instrument Corporation. So Fairchild was located back on Long Island in New York. Uh, and they owned the company. Um, <laughs> so funny. I always assumed that Fairchild was like one of the traitorous eight. No, not at all. Uh, yeah, they didn't actually own the company. I believe they had equity in it. But no. Uh, so how did this happen? A man named Sherman Fairchild at this point in time who lived in Long Island was the largest shareholder in IBM because his father had helped finance Tom Watson in forming IBM uh, many years many years earlier. So when the Trader S8 were trying to get their new company off the ground, they intersected with a man named Arthur Rock, who's going to come up again in a minute here, who was one of sort of the early proto-venture capitalists in California. Uh, and he was a former investment banker, and he was trying to get financing. It was really hard. And so he ended up going to Sherman Fairchild because he knew Sherman was the largest shareholder in IBM. He was interested in technology. And uh, Sherman agreed to set this up as a division of his camera and instrument corporation. Wow. Creative. Yeah. Yeah, which is, uh, which is crazy. So the way it happened, they loaned $1.5 million to the company in return for which they got an option to buy all of the stock of the company for $3 million. <laughs> uh, imagine if, if VCs uh, structured uh, deals that way today with founders. It wouldn't, uh, wouldn't quite set up the, uh, the right uh, set of incentives. No. No. Um, but you got to you know, crawl before you can walk. Yeah, say. yeah. You know, Fairchild would lead to many, many things, including, of course, Intel. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I mentioned Arthur Rock. So what was the financing environment for quote-unquote startups in in california at this point in time knowing how markets work i think we can assume that there wasn't much of it given the terms of that other investment that you just mentioned <laughs> indeed so as uh you might guess from how fairchild was financed the quote-unquote venture capital industry or the proto venture capital industry that existed in california at this time was pretty much nothing like we know it today for one it was so small that the individuals who were doing it, all of them in California, they would meet for lunch once a month at the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco at like a table, regular table, and they would sit around and, and talk about like the various companies that they were working on. <laughs> that, was, that was it. That was the entire industry. And for two, none of them actually came from a technology or a, a startup or company background. So Arthur Rock, who, who we mentioned, he was an investment banker. And a few other folks that were kind of instrumental at this point in time, uh, Pitch Johnson and Bill Draper, the name Draper might uh, ring a few bells for folks. They had worked in the steel industry and come out to California and started financing companies. There was another gentleman named Tommy Davis. He was a real estate developer who developed an interest in this this sort of thing. So that was that was really the state of things. And um, you know, as evidenced by Fairchild, you know, here you have eight of the most talented scientists and engineers working in the highest growth industry in the world. And it's literally impossible to finance them. They have to get essentially bought by an East Coast company to even get their company. That's wild. Ground. It's totally so interesting. Wild. Like venture capital falls under the 
broad asset class today of alternative investments, which always seems a little funny given you know how, how much, especially today with all the late stage com- uh, money coming into startups, how much money is really invested there. And it's silly to call it alternative. Now, when you look at it in these days, it's very much, uh, you had to be a very alternative counterculture person to believe that this was the best way to go and invest your money. So it's right at this moment in time that a quite a maverick, one might say, uh, individual comes on the scene and basically, basically single-handedly writes the playbook of what modern venture capital and alongside it, uh, what a modern startup would look like. And that man's name is Don Valentine. So Don, of course, goes on and and starts Sequoia Capital. And we're going to tell this story here. I cannot recommend highly enough anyone, whether certainly if you work in or are interested in venture, but even if not, if you're just interested in technology and startups, go do two things. One, watch uh, the YouTube video of a talk that Don gave uh, at the GSP at Stanford in 2010. And two, read um, this wonderful, wonderful oral history that uh, Berkeley did uh, as part of the history department there with Don. Uh, and uh, you will get a sense for what an amazing character this guy is. And, and a lot of this show is a lot of the history of this show is taken from those two documents. Yeah. And listeners, the way to think about part one and part two of the Sequoia story, part one that we're going to focus on here, this is really Don's story. Yeah. And uh, it's really cool. Actually, the, the talk that he gives at Stanford, he holds up uh, towards the beginning of it, the resume of an individual who had just joined Sequoia <laughs> Capital that week. That individual is Alfred Lynn, of course, friend of the show and former guest. This is like kind of, of amazing. He printed out Alfred's resume and brought it to this talk. I as also a love that Alfred like had a resume at that point. <laughs> like he was, you know, COO and chairman of Zappos that had just been acquired for over a billion dollars, but always hustling. Okay, so who is Don? So he was born in 1933 in Yonkers, New York, uh, back on the East Coast. His father was a teamster, um, so a delivery truck driver, and a union member, uh, if you can imagine it, which um, Don took a, ends up taking a very, very different path in life. Um, his parents were completely uneducated, both of them. Uh, neither of them had finished grade school. Um, Don, wow, so not like, not like hadn't gone to college, like hadn't finished grade school. No, literally like had not finished elementary school. But in good Catholic fashion, uh, they do value education and especially Catholic and religious education. And so Don grows up in uh, in New York going to Catholic schools. And then he does he ends up going to Fordham University, uh, Jesuit University, graduates in the early 1950s, and promptly, as most folks did back then, or at least most men, gets drafted into the army. Uh, this is, I believe, right either during or right before when the Korean War is going on. According to Don, he, quote, had a terrible attitude about the military. He didn't like and doesn't like regimentation. And this is going to become very clear. Don (laughs) does things his own way. But one thing that he loves is electronics and technology. And um, he ends up getting put in charge in the army of, of, in his words, trying to teach senior officers to use modern technology instead of the way that they were inclined to fight wars, you know, which was with like horses and, you know, (laughs) and cavalry. (laughs) All that said, the army and Don still don't really mix. So he transfers to the Navy. And this is a major, major moment for him because he gets stationed in California. He comes out to California and he steps off the boat and he's like, 
I have reached the promised land. It doesn't snow here in the winter. I'm never going back to the East Coast. I love this place. His goal is he wants to find employment at a West Coast electronics company. Um, So he gets out of the Navy. Uh, It ends up taking a little while. He first gets a job at Sylvania Electric, uh, which was actually based in Pennsylvania. I believe he was working for them in New York. Is that the the vacuum cleaner company? uh, Well, it's the vacuum tube company. So this is how he gets into technology because this was still, you know, the semiconductor, I believe had been invented by Shockley and others at this point. Most computing, such as it was, was being done with vacuum tubes. You know, remember the ENIAC and like, this is what we're talking about back in these days. I Uh, guess I know Sylvania as a lighting company. I think, do they make light bulbs? I've like seen the logo around like Home Depot. Yeah, I think they make light bulbs now. I mean, who knows what the corporate structure of the company is these days. At the time, they're making vacuum tubes and selling them as as computing components mostly to uh, the defense department and of course don had come from the military uh so don ends up jumping ship to raytheon and moving to los angeles so here he is he's finally he's achieved his goal he's living in la out in california loving life surfing uh he was a big water polo player and he's working in uh, what at the time was the high technology industry selling uh, computing solutions to the Defense Department and the military. He starts taking part-time courses at the business school at UCLA uh, focused on sales and marketing because he becomes really interested in, uh, of course, sales, which is his job, but also the marketing component, like who are we selling to and why? And he has a great quote. He says, you know, uh, where is the decision-making process in a great company? The answer is it's in marketing. In a well-run company, the marketing department in conjunction with the science department, science being engineering at the time, decides based on what their capabilities are, what the problems they can solve, what sequence they should solve them in, and how much money they can spend, they can spend on building that product and how big is the market. Who's going to buy this stuff? And all that happens within marketing in a primary position. This really becomes Don's life passion. And, and that ethos you know, ends up informing uh, everything he does and, and everything at Sequoia Capital, as we'll see. Um, so after a short stint at Raytheon, uh, he ends up getting recruited to move up to Northern California and join a fresh startup in a, a really hot semiconductor company up there. Fairchild Semiconductor was was Fairchild independent at this point, or were they still a part of the the bigger umbrella? No, they were. They were. This was still very early. They were part of uh, of Cameron Instrument, as we'll see. So Don joins. He's not part of the Traders Eight, but he joins. He's like employee number forty or fifty. They're doing a couple million dollars in sales, but still really small. And um, at first, they put him in charge of of selling. Fairchild Semiconductors to defense firms back in Southern California. So they sent him back down to Southern California. And Which is kind of funny. To... It's it's exactly what he's doing in the army, right? It's educating exactly. uh, about modern technology that, you know, to, to people who had been doing things an older way and trying to basically do a very complex sale. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing that like, uh, you know, Don's history from Yonkers, New York, everything basically, you know, sets him on. It's like the Steve Jobs quote of like, you can't connect the dots looking forward, but looking back, everything you've done, you know, prepares you for what you're doing now. Don, you know, basically uh, knocks it out of the park uh, selling selling to defense contractors down in LA, he takes the company from this couple million dollars in sales when he joins to over $150 million in annual sales uh, in just a couple years. 
And, um, and it's over that time he gets promoted, ends up running all of sales and marketing for Fairchild. And he starts using everything that he's learned in his passion for marketing to tap into like, Hey, maybe we should be selling to other markets too. And which other markets should we be selling to? And are there things that we can do to customize the chips that we're making to make them more applicable to these other applications and other markets? The quote he has here is, business was so good. I mean, this was like, God, to be at this moment in time, it was like, it was like to be there in, you know, uh, the mid uh, mid nineties when the internet was taking off or the mid two thousands when web 2.0 was taking off. And it was literally just like, you could see the roadmap of what all the applications were going to be. And it was just like, go build them first and best. Yeah. Not only did the semiconductor have perfect product market fit, but it scaled horizontally across tons of industries. I mean, everybody was going to need equipment that required semiconductors. And I think, you know, that now we sort of like take it for granted. Actually, we're in this phase where we're sort of moving forward from IT departments into, you know, companies that don't have IT departments. But this was the development of IT. You know, this was every, every company that was starting to embrace technology would use something with semiconductor products in it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to see this here in a minute with the personal computer and Apple, uh, but then with the internet, then with Web 2.0, then with mobile, like you have this tectonic shift. And then it's like, okay, we know what the applications are. Let's go build the applications. And Don is really the first person um, in in technology to recognize that these are this is the dynamic of how the broader technology ecosystem works. Um, so he says, business was so good that we had more opportunities than we had engineers. And we devised a bit of an ad hoc technique for evaluating different companies, companies that Fairchild could potentially work with and, and sell to, before we would commit our engineering resources to work on them on a specific project. We had to understand the nature of the application and understand the size of the market. There are a number of kind of highlight things that we did before we committed engineering. And you know, you can think about that and think about like, gosh, man, that sounds a lot like writing an investment memo for yeah. <laughs> a venture capital firm. It's also what a what an incredible privilege to to be in a position where you get to pick your customers based on who you think is going to be the most successful with your product. Yeah, yeah, totally. So remember, though, um, Don's working at Fairchild. He's taken them from a couple million in revenue to over 150 million in revenue, and this is like you know the the early 19s, late 50s, early 1960s. So 150 million wasn't just 150 million back then. Remember though, Fairchild, you know, it isn't an independent company. It's a subsidiary of this Long Island-based East Coast, you know, conservative Cameron Instrument Corporation. So every time that Don is, you know, working on building, you know, a new customization and application, new market that Fairchild wants to enter, he has to go to the board of the company and get their approval for what they're doing. And Don starts, you know, that goes well enough. Like incentives are aligned. Of course, Fairchild wants wants the, the company to grow and do well. Um, but Don gets this idea. He's like, you know, we could really accelerate our market and our partners that we're working with. A lot of these applications companies are new entities that are integrating our technology into a full solution for a given industry, they're getting off the ground. We could really accelerate things if we invested in these companies and helped them uh, help them build themselves because the, the bigger that they get and the faster that they get bigger, the more sales they're going to have, the more sales we're going to have. Right. 
it's this ecosystem mindset. You know, we need to we need to help invest to build the ecosystem around our products. Totally. Uh, so he thinks this is brilliant. He takes this idea to the board, and the board is like, "Absolutely not. That's a crazy idea. Whoever would want to do." that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Don in, in typical Don fashion, he says, well, screw it. Like if the board's not going to do this, I'm just going to start doing this on my own with my own money. When he would be working on the on the technology and marketing roadmaps for, for Fairchild and working with startups to help build applications, he would just start investing small amounts of money personally in these startups uh, that he would, knew that he was going to make them into big companies. Um, the only problem though is like he's doing this personally he doesn't have enough capital to really get these companies all the way to working you know it's so funny how like we, we joke here at wave that like uh you know you're you're raising money for a new startup and um you know even today in 2019 like the answer for how much capital you need always comes back to like you know somewhere between one to three million to get off the ground and that was the case even back then <laughs> Is, this is totally amazing. This is like my one of my biggest tech themes, but it is crazy looking at their first five investments. Two of them were at two million, and one of them was at two and a half million. And it like it is today's seed round. And yet, what they're doing is they're building freaking you know semiconductor physical applications. Like they're they're using semiconductors to make another product physically manufacture it. Like it is. Yeah, they're setting Nuts up manufacturing. Like totally. Uh, yeah. So even back in the sixties, you know, a couple million back then was a lot more in today's dollars, but you had to do all this really hard stuff. Don starts doing this. Fast forward to nineteen sixty-seven, and there was another company in the valley uh that had been around for a long time and was kind of floundering, uh, called National Semiconductor. And uh, National makes a big play. They're already a public company, I believe. They poach a number of people from Fairchild, including Charles Sprock, who becomes the CEO of National, and Pierre Lamond from uh, a, a name that's going to come up again very soon. Pierre Lamond from Fairchild, who becomes the chief chip designer and head of engineering there. Um, so Charlie Sprock, as CEO, he does a couple really interesting things. First is so. Everybody in Silicon Valley at this point, remember, it's called Silicon Valley because they're making silicon chips. They're making the chips there in Northern California. Fairchild's producing them there. All these companies that Don's investing in, they're doing manufacturing right there. Charlie and National, he offshores chip production to Asia. And he, he reasons that like, hey, the intellectual property that we're building here, we can just do all the design and building here and we'll just outsource the actual production of these, these chips of the silicon as a commodity. Um, so that creates a huge price war in the industry and massively lowers the cost of silicon, which then in, ends up enabling all the things that come shortly thereafter, including the PC. We should also say that the incredible growth and demand for silicon is Fairchild's fault because Fairchild was the one who pioneered the idea that silicon was actually the most effective material to use for semiconductors. That wasn't the case before. I believe before Fairchild, people were using germanium to make yep. semiconductors, which is a rare precious metal. Yep. National would actually go on later to acquire Fairchild. And uh, Ben, do you know who would ultimately become the CEO of National Semiconductor? Uh, this is, you know, this is like the beginning oh, of the know. valley being a small place <laughs> and, uh, and all of these dynamics enabling the personal computer. Gil Emilio. Oh, what? Yes. Of <laughs> Apple fame. Yes. Future CEO of Apple. Future uh, his first, I floundering believe his first, CEO of Apple. Yeah. 
I believe his first CEO gig was taking over for Charlie as CEO wow. of National. Yeah. So all of this is going on. Fairchild is on the ropes. Uh, in 1968, Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce leave Fairchild. So Don Valentine's still there at Fairchild. Uh, and they start Intel. And Don sees the writing on the wall and he's like, oh man, Fairchild is cooked. Uh, brain drain. He, yeah, brain drain. Uh, I mean, it's just like Silicon Valley today. These things start happening. Like the the key leaders and really smart people start leaving. You know, the writing's on the wall. Uh, he leaves. He moves over to National as head of sales and marketing at National. Now, this is where serendipity completely strikes. Uh, if Don hadn't made this move, I'd seriously doubt that there would be a Sequoia Capital. And there may not be a modern venture capital industry as we know it today. So Charlie um, is obviously brilliant. And this move of outsourcing uh, production of, of chips is revolutionary to the industry. And but, quite prescient. And quite prescient. Um, but there's one thing that he's absolutely terrible at, and that is public speaking. <laughs> and that's one thing that Don is not afraid of. So uh, remember, National is a public company, um, and they have to do earnings calls with Wall Street, even back in 1968. Charlie's terrified of this. He doesn't want to do them. And so as soon as Don shows up, he says, great, Don, you're head of sales and marketing. You lead the earnings calls. Uh, Which would be unheard of today for, I mean, it's your CEO and your CFO, CFO, basically without, you know, without exception. Yep. Yep. And you have other executives on there from time to time, but uh, sure, but, but not yeah, leading it. Don starts leading the earnings calls. Um, through that, he gets to know a lot of the shareholders of National, and it turns out that one of their largest investors is an enormous public investment fund based in Los Angeles, back in Don's old stomping grounds, called um, at the time called the American Funds. And that was part of this institution called Capital Group, which I think a lot of people don't know about. But Capital Group still today is one of the largest uh, uh, mutual funds and pools of mutual funds of money managers in the world. Um, I believe they have well over a trillion dollars in capital under management across many, many funds. Capital Group, uh, they had been seeing what was starting to happen up in you know the new proto Silicon Valley. Uh, they'd seen the Intel IPO that had happened, uh, which had, you know, was the first, and Intel was the first true venture-backed company that had gone public and all the wealth that that had created. And who uh, originally backed Intel? Uh, I believe it was Arthur Rock. Arthur Rock organized a syndicate that backed Intel with equity. Uh, Well, it was a convertible instrument. It was like convertible debt, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A story for another day. So Capital Group, they'd seen this, and they actually funded amd uh and amd also came out of fairchild which i didn't know until doing research for this for this story so yeah both intel and amd both were fairchild alumni i mean the uh really all goes back to the traitorous aid and this legacy of like hey leaving dying companies and starting new ones out of them that propels silicon valley to its day to this day that is so much like all these other industries we've talked about. I mean, Verizon and AT&T basically both coming out of the the original massive AT&T company. It feels like chip companies are not unique in this characteristic of, uh, of you know, both modern giants coming from the same source. Yeah, yeah. So Capital Group, they've invested, they've privately funded AMD. They're a big investor in National. So they're like, you know, especially as a public investment vehicle, they're at the forefront of being um, investing in Silicon Valley and its growth. Uh, They get to know Don and 
they learn from Don about all this private investing he's doing. And so they approach him with an offer. How about he do this full-time, leave National, and come and start working with them at Capital Group? They'll give him you know, certainly capital, and they have more capital than probably just about anybody in, in the world at this point in time, uh, or access to capital, and take him from, you know, the couple thousand dollar personal checks that he's able to write to finance these companies up to enough that he can actually support them to get to uh, get to a public offering where they need to get to. Um, so Don jumps at this chance. Uh, you know, this is his true passion. He loves this. And this is a chance to um, you know, take all of these roadmaps and marketing and market analysis skills that he's developed and just have this be his full-time job. This is, of course, the birth of the illustrious and uh, a name we all know today, Capital Management Services, Inc. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was part of Capital Group. So we'll get into the structure in a second. I want to throw in a few great quotes from, from Don here. He talks about why he had the courage to think that he could do this full-time. And remember, this is crazy. Like Nobody is investing full-time in private technology companies at this point in time. It's, it's you know, a bunch of folks who made money in other industries having lunch at the Mark Hopkins Hotel, remember? And Don is going to make this his full-time job. So he said, I had a sense that my system of selection would work far more than it wouldn't, but I didn't have the resources personally to play Texas Hold'em and put up more chips. Um, the opportunity to have a large discretionary pool of money to continue to support the investment ideas was the difference in the environment I was in and the environment I was interested in going to. And after 12 or 13 years in the semiconductor business, I had a very high profile reputation in this community. And again, he was already doing the investing privately. Uh, so he says, so people who are interested in starting companies often gravitated to me to help them start their companies. From their point of view, I had some money, I knew how markets worked, and how to help them position their company in the market. So I had a bit of an unfair advantage in those two respects. But the most unfair advantage I had was I knew what the future was. And very few people knew what the future was. Nobody else, nobody else in the venture capital industry at this point was from the semiconductor business nobody else knew marketing and nobody else knew the microprocessor uh so it's kind of amazing like don has this as we've talked it's about th it's three pretty valuable things to be good at at this point in time exactly exactly so like if you think about what what he's saying so it maps pretty exactly to the core functions of a venture capital firm so on sourcing, he has a network of super talented technical people and scientists with the right experience to start technology companies. You know, he is, I mean, his name is Don. It's, it's perfect. He's like the original Silicon Valley mafia Don. Uh, that's one, that's like top of the funnel, that's sourcing. But then two, he has this unique experience that he knows all the roadmaps of, you know, Fairchild and National and the whole semiconductor industry. He knows what markets to attack. So he has like the selection judgment of which founders and ideas to invest in. And then he has the ability to actually help them, unlike anybody else in the industry at the time, actually help them build their companies through, you know, certainly recruiting management teams, but also strategy and decisions in the early days, because he's lived through it. So he can help them build their companies. And now finally, through Capital Group, he has access to essentially an unlimited pool of capital, which again, nobody else in the industry had. People were having to go back to the East Coast of Fairchild to finance their companies. So, David, you're saying an unlimited pool of capital. How does that really break down and how much money <laughs> from the capital group could Don really invest in startups? Exactly. So this is 1972. Don leaves. He starts working with capital group and capital group sets up a new $5 million fund. 
for their clients who want to invest in this high risk, high return startup in the semiconductor industry in in um, in Northern California, and Capital Group calls it the quote unquote Sequoia Fund, uh, and this is the beginning. Oh, Capital of the Group came up with the Sequoia. Name? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if Capital Group or Don did, but it is it is within Capital Group. This 1972 five million dollar fund is called the Sequoia Fund, and uh, so Don starts working on this on behalf of Capital Group and Capital Group's clients. But, you know, again, Don's kind of like a maverick and he does things his own way. He really, he's not super interested in just working for Capital Group forever. He really wants to do this himself. And, and Capital Group totally supports him in that. So he starts making investments on behalf of them. But he also starts working in parallel on creating his own fund and own firm uh, that he's going to call Sequoia Capital and raising an outside fund. And you would think this would be easy, right? I mean, Don has this amazing track record. He has a brilliant strategy that nobody else can replicate. He knows what's going to work. He has the... uh, he has that there are no LPs. Well, (laughs) he has the stamp and imprimatur of Capital Group, you know, one of the most storied money managers, um, you know, in the world at that point in time. And Don... (laughs) <laughs> he learns a lesson that uh, you know generations of people who start new firms uh, have learned again and again. Uh, we learned at Wave, which was that even with all that, starting raising a first-time fund is really freaking hard. <laughs> like really freaking hard. Yeah, and what Don was doing was raising a first-time fund for an asset class that didn't yet exist. So for Don, there weren't a group of investors who were used to putting money in this risk-return profile. It, it, it was going and convincing them, hey, like there's not really historical data on this, but you should take a flyer not only on me, but on this entire concept. Yeah, totally. I mean, you got to remember, this is pre, you know, for for listeners who know about David Swenson at Yale, the uh, chief investment officer at Yale, he really pioneered this um, this approach that large uh, pools of capital, especially tax exempt nonprofit pools of capital, should should put a lot of their assets in alternative investments where they can get extremely high returns over a long time horizon. And because they're tax exempt, they can compound those returns at a much higher rate than than ordinary folks. This concept didn't exist. So most pools of capital, you know, university endowments, uh, foundations, family offices, and the like, you know, all, all of capital it's, groups it's, clients. It's bonds, it's treasury it's, bills. Yeah, it's, it's fixed a income. A little bit of stock. Yeah. That they're investing in, you know, and, and these folks, they're targeting across their investments uh, a 10% IRR. Uh, which, you know, is great and better than like the, you know, average market returns, but it's nothing like what Don thinks he can generate and what the venture capital industry promises. So he goes out and he makes this pitch about like, hey, I think I can at least double 10% IRR. And if you look at my personal track record, like it's much more than that. And indeed, Sequoia's first few funds would be well, well above 10% IRR, many multiples above that. The reception he gets is like, well, this doesn't sound like the investing business. You know, this isn't fixed income. This isn't, you know, and and Don's like, yeah, you're exactly right. This isn't the investment business. This is the company building business. I'm in the business of starting and helping build great companies. And, and he's so right. I mean, that is what true early stage venture is. It's not, you know, investing, allocating money and seeing what happens. It's really digging in and helping start something from scratch. And that's where to this day, you know, the deep, uh, the, the true outlier returns are. Um, but the LP community is just like, <laughs> they don't get it. So Don tells this great story 
he goes to see Solomon Brothers in New York, the oh, story yeah. investment bank, which uh, <laughs> I believe it was Solomon Brothers that was the subject of uh, Liar's Poker, Michael Lewis's first book. And um, and he sits down with the folks there. He gives them the pitch and they say, uh, I see that you didn't go to Harvard Business School. <laughs> and he says, right, I didn't go to Harvard Business School. I went to Fairchild Semiconductor Business School. <laughs> and um, they didn't like laugh at all. And they're like, we're not going to invest with anybody who didn't go to Harvard Business School. <laughs> uh, so it ends up taking him uh, almost three years while working with Capital Group to raise the first independent Sequoia Fund. Uh, but finally, in 1975... And, and even that, that was like single digit. Like, how big was that fund? I couldn't get the exact data. Well, I, I saw a couple of conflicting sources, but I believe it was somewhere between three to five million. So quite, quite small. And that's with three years of work on it. Just think about the tenacity. I mean, most people would give up. Yeah, totally. Think of Sequoia Capital today. And then think back to the early 70s and one man, you know, Don Valentine, scraping together for three years just because he believes so deeply in this vision of the future to uh, to put, you know, three to five million together and start investing. Like, it really just like tells you a ton about, um, you know, you look at their ethos today and this is where it comes from. Once he gets started, he sets what he calls a few ground rules for investing. So these are, this is the original Sequoia Capital investing checklist. One, must be in a very big market, the, the potential investment. Two, must be in Northern California. That's changed. <laughs> Three, must be in advanced technology. Four, must have high gross margin ability. That has also changed. And five, must have the potential for Sequoia to make $100 million on the investment. I mean, that's incredible. Like, three to five million dollar fund and he's still like he's only aiming for shooting for the moon like sequoia alone could make a hundred million dollars on these investments which is basically by today's standards saying it has to be a unicorn because in general uh an early stage um call it a series a uh, investor is going to get diluted to around 10 percent ownership by the time there's an exit is sort of the finger in the air way you would think about this stuff sequoia's uh, had some examples where they've bought up more think dropbox um and there's also uh, ex- yep. examples that we're about to go into where um, the, the terms were much different and you didn't just buy 15 to 20% of a company, you bought much more in these early days. Um, well, and these but- companies, most of them weren't raising multiple rounds. So Sequoia was financing, that was the only private capital that they were raising, and then they were going achieving profitability and, and going public. But, but still, like, you know, you think about today, people talk about, um, you know, oh, a VC investment, you got to underwrite to 10x returns. You know, even from day one, Don's underwriting to 20x plus returns. And if he doesn't see that, and, and still to this day, I mean, uh, I think one of the things Sequoia is really known for is they will only attack markets that truly have the potential to be large. Like a billion dollar market is not enough for them. You need a multi-billion dollar, uh, you know, ideally 10 plus billion dollar market. Because again, like they're aiming for each of their investments to make 20x plus. And then the final, I love this, the final item on the checklist for for Don's criteria for investing is must be positively responsive to our active participation. <laughs> uh, you know, which is great. No, and, and um, you know, obviously Don uh, develops quite a reputation as we, uh, as we talked about with Trip on the EA episode. Being very active and being in very active. Not only governance, but uh, um, influencing management of the companies. This is really critical. Like Don, he has the credibility to be very active in these companies because he has helped build the previous generation of, you know, of 
defining companies that are setting the roadmap for everything that's going forward. The other thing that he develops is uh, is is a methodology for kind of assessing entrepreneurs. David, but before diving into the entrepreneur side of things, the thing that struck me on these ground rules, and as we've danced around a couple times here, Don plays by his own rules, and, and he sort of has this ethos of, uh, the, this this early stage investment business is a subjective business. It's not a highly analytical, data driven business. Like it's a it's a feeling business. And yet, in these ground rules, it's it's interesting to see what hard and fast financial things jump out. So even in this high area of subjectivity and gut feel, must have high gross margin ability is in there as one of these precious few rules. You know, as an early stage investor, that's that's like really ringing home to me and, and and thinking about how important that is in the ability to to sort of, of course, scale a company, but but generate outsized returns. The only number that you see in here is that that 100 million. Um, then the only other thing that sort of close to resembles a number is high gross margin ability. It's interesting to think about what makes the cut. Yeah, well, and this this also leads into um, the his, his methodology for assessing entrepreneurs. But um, Don, you know, as, as so many other things in pioneering the venture capital industry, like I think he, I don't think he would put it in these words, but he recognized that this is a business that is both art and science. And that is what is so incredibly awesome and fun and rewarding about working in this industry and in, in early stage venture capital. But again, you know, if you think back to the folks that were doing this before, it was all art, you know? <laughs> and if you think to a lot of the, entrepreneurs who were starting companies like the Trader S8, um, it was all science. Like they weren't thinking about the art of like, oh, how do we make this into like a huge wealth generating vehicle for ourselves and for the ecosystem? It was like, no, we just want to go do science, you know, <laughs> and let's like find some way to do science. And, and Don is really the first person, I think, to bridge this gap. The methodology for assessing companies and entrepreneurs, he kind of goes back to, and I assume this, he was doing this when he was working at companies too. You know, Remember, he has this Jesuit education and you know, Catholic school up, upbringing background. And he goes to, uh, he, he goes to the Socratic method. You know, Still to this day, I think this is a lot of how Sequoia runs their interactions with entrepreneurs. They ask questions and then they just listen to the answers. This is such a key to being a great VC. One thing that I struggle with a ton is like you can, the temptation is always to insert yourself into what's going on. Don recognizes that like what you need to do is listen to what the entrepreneurs are saying. You may agree or disagree or like understand or not understand, but like you need to understand how they think about things, not how you think about things. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, and it's not about their answers, but why they're thinking that answer is the right answer and how they arrive there and what the thought process is. Yeah. And so, you know, Don talks a lot about, uh, and uh, if you watch the the YouTube video of, of, of him at Stanford, how formulating a question he believes is the most important thing in his business. And so he has a rule that questions can only be 20 words or less. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, when, he, when he solicits questions from the audience at Stanford, he says, 20 words or less or I'll kill you. <laughs> uh, it's great. But that's how he approaches things because he's really interested in the storytelling technique of, of the entrepreneurs because he says it's about the building of the idea, the size of the market, the degree of technical risk to get this product finished, who's going to care, and explaining that in a very simple way. We can tell that that person who can do that, explain it in a very simple way, is somebody we want to be in business with. People who are instead 
complex rambling all over the place. They're not, you know, Donna's realized that the value, uh, the only competitive advantage that startups have is focus and speed and stealth. And so if you're all over the place, you're not going to be able to execute on those things. And that's still true today. So David, how do you square all of this with Don's sort of uh, off-stated principle that he invests in markets, not founders? Yes. And uh, how, how does this assessment of founders fit into that notion? Well, you know, and I'm I asking you this as technology historian, not yes. uh, obviously you're not in Don's head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think of course they're interrelated, and like all investing, it is it is early stage investing, it is about both the market and the team. But I think that's this is the key is like, the market is the important thing. But you need a team This gets back to uh, Don's last point on his checklist of must be receptive to our active participation. You need a team that's going to be focused and able to quickly get the right solution into the market. And so he has this, this really great quote that I think encapsulates this. He says, so our view has always been, preferably, give us a big technical problem, give us a big market when that technical problem is solved so we can sell lots and lots and lots of stuff. Do I like to do that with terrific people? Sure. Are we willing to invest in companies that don't have them? Sure. You can augment management. You can help them with more people that are highly qualified. We invest in the size and the dynamics of the market. I don't care if Genghis Khan is running the company. We'll give <laughs> Genghis Khan some help. <laughs> give me a giant market always. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, Steve Jobs is going to come up in a minute here. But I think, you know, his point about Genghis Khan is that Genghis Khan may be Genghis Khan, but he was focused on, you know, winning <laughs> and uh, speed and conquering. Uh, and that's what they're looking for. And that to just beat this metaphor to death and that Genghis Khan also has weaknesses and therefore must have a team that surrounds and complements. And I think Don has some quote, I, I don't have it exactly, but about how the most critical thing for an entrepreneur when sort of listening to these questions, what are you listening for, is is really this self-awareness of what they're good at and what they're not. And exactly point number six, how receptive they're going to be um, to to being helped with those weaknesses. Yeah. I mean, again, think back to this moment in time, the people that were starting these companies, they were engineers, they were scientists by and large. And uh, Don's superpower was he was able to augment these companies and these teams with folks like himself who were able to do sales and marketing and go to market. And then Sequoia could help argument, augment with finance and accounting and everything around that and, uh, and the outsourcing of all that. What he couldn't have was folks who thought they knew everything. So what actually do they end up investing in once they close this, the first Sequoia Capital Fund in 1975? So it turns out Don makes his first investment in, indeed, a quite giant market enabled by semiconductors, but uh, one a little off the beaten path and certainly different than um, the uh, defense contractors that he started his career selling to. And that was Atari. <laughs> uh, and we're going to talk much more about Atari later in the season here on Acquired. But uh, it was the very first independent Sequoia Capital investment. Don invests $600,000 uh, in the company in 1975. Uh, and the very next year, the company ends up getting acquired by Warner Communications for $28 million. Uh, and Sequoia makes a quick 4x return, you know, which is great. Great IRR. Uh, but... Uh, does fall short of the 20x that Don is hoping to underwrite to. Did I find it different 
source on that? I thought it was a $2 million initial investment. Uh, or was it, to, did he do a follow-on for $2 million? I believe the initial investment was 600K. Now, Atari had also already been around for quite yeah. a while. When, uh, I think and three, had, three years they had gone yeah. without before raising. Yep. And uh, Don had known Nolan, Nolan Bushnell, the CEO, for, for many years. So I have to assume this was one that he had kind of waiting in the wings uh, uh, until, uh, <laughs> until he closed the fund. Which, which every good uh, venture capitalist should have when out raising their first fund is who, who's going to be your first investment. Oh, man. We did that too at Wave. It's amazing. It's amazing how much the industry is still the same. So then in 1977, uh, Sequoia makes um, what could have been uh, perhaps their <laughs> biggest and most important investment ever and unfortunately becomes perhaps their biggest and most important lesson. Just to pile one more thing on before the big reveal, which everyone probably already knows, uh, is responsible for about a trillion of that 3.3 trillion number that I quoted of public market value today. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good thing they still have another 2.3 trillion that they're part of. So in 1977, as Trip alluded to on our EA episode, Sequoia invests in another little company that was founded by an early former Atari employee, and that was Apple Computer. So Steve Jobs had worked for Nolan Bushnell at Atari, uh, and uh, Don had had gotten to know him a little bit then. And they'd so Jobs and Waz had started the company, and they brought on Mike Scott as the first president of the company. Now, yeah, we should say her- D- Doug got to know uh, Jobs a little bit at that company, but did not have the impression that this was a venture backable guy at this yeah. point in time. <laughs> I believe his quote on Steve Jobs was that he looked like Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, so Mike, uh, the the two Steves had brought on as the first president. And it turns out Mike used to work for Don back at Fairchild and National. And uh, so Don gets wind of the company. You know, He meets with them. And Don also knew a very important guy in Apple's history. Mike Markula also used to work for Don back in the semiconductor days. And Don, quote unquote, sends him to the company with the intention that Markula is going to replace Mike Scott as the president and run the company. Ultimately, though, uh, you know, as Trip talked about, Markula makes a brilliant decision and says, you know, I don't actually want to run this thing day to day. I'm going to be the chairman and really help these guys. But regardless, what's, you know, this is a you know, kind of perfect example of Don's company building at work and management team uh, recruiting. On the back of this, Apple raises their first venture capital round of just over half a million dollars. Interestingly, um, the lion's share of the capital comes not from Sequoia, but from Venrock, uh, which does a little over $250,000. Don and Sequoia do $150,000, and Arthur Rock does the balance. So Apple is off to the races, and they really, you know, as we've chronicled many times and will continue to chronicle in the future, really invent the personal computer and usher uh, that wave of technology in two years later though and this is <laughs> this is the david sigh there comes i know uh, oh, this is just so painful uh so painful and and clearly has left its mark on on sequoia two years later i couldn't find all of the circumstances around this but to the best of my understanding so uh the first sequoia fund did not have only 
tax exempt nonprofit LPs in it. Uh, it also had, I believe, you know, individuals and, and maybe corporations and, uh, you know, not Solomon Brothers, but other folks like it and certainly Capital Group. As a result of that, uh, those folks needed to pay taxes. And apparently, some of these LPs were encouraging Don to make a distribution of some of the gains in the fund so that they could pay their taxes on the gains. And so Apple had grown quite a lot. It's now 1979. And Don, before the IPO, sells Sequoia's stake, which they had invested $150,000 for $6 million uh, to make this tax distribution to LPs. Now, that's a enormous return it's a phenomenal return yeah phenomenal return but oh my goodness six million dollars <laughs> compared to what apple you know would shortly become and then ultimately in the long term of course become and it's this lesson you know that drives uh, sequoia in subsequent funds to take uh, to take their capital only from nonprofit tax exempt sources which becomes you know really not uh, certainly the norm across the industry, but uh, a goal and, and the lion's share of money that moves into venture capital is ends up being university endowments, foundations, folks that are super long-term and patient and aren't going to force VCs to make uh, these terrible decisions like this. Yeah. And another, uh, uh, you can sort of check me on this, David, but uh, my understanding is Sequoia, more so than your average venture firm, holds the stock in companies longer after they go public and, and often um, sticks with the companies for a very long time, I think probably also inspired by this lesson. This and, and others that we're gonna that we're gonna talk about here uh, in short order, uh, you know, we're gonna talk about Sequoia's playbook in a little bit, but one of the key lessons that they learn is like when things are going well, go long, you know, like value creation in these companies that are building and creating enormous markets takes a long, long, long time. I mean, just look at, you know, Airbnb, look at Google, look at, you know, look at Apple. Uh, you know, you can still be getting enormous, enormous value creation a decade plus after these companies are founded, regardless of whether they're private or public. Yep. So it's fascinating to think about, you know, the first couple of investments or first two out of a handful of investments being Apple and Atari in total, you returned a profit of about $10 million or a max of $10 million. It is wild to think that that is the sum total of, of Sequoia's return on those two companies. I know, I know. But at the time, I mean, like, even, you know, f pulling it into context today, like, if we within, you know, two to three years of starting Wave, if we could be sitting on 2x cash distributed, like... I would feel great about that, you know, but the lesson here is like, that's not the game where the business we're in or the game we're playing. The game we're playing is like 10 X plus cash distributed. And to do that, you really need to be in it for the long haul, especially when you're investing early. Yeah. The other thing to know here and, and David, as you, uh, as you foreshadow and you've been smiling a little bit, we will get into this much more later this season. Uh, but with Atari, the Atari boom that we all sort of know of in the eighties was after it had sold to Warner. And so, you know, Sequoia didn't even have an option in participating in that upside unless they were going to block the sale. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and, and that also leads to another part of the Sequoia playbook, which is like when things are going well, really try and convince these companies to stay independent and not sell. I mean, look at Instagram, right? Like, <laughs> selling Instagram to Facebook was uh, was a terrible, terrible mistake by the founders and the investors, even though, you know, it netted them great returns at the moment. And it was interesting, Sequoia ended up investing right before that deal happened. 
that is a debatable topic, but we can... Uh, you think that's debatable? I think if it had gone a lot longer, then Facebook would have had to pay a lot more, like in the dozens of billions of dollars to acquire, purely because there is a very, very high user count uh, social network that is a threat to them. However, do I think that Instagram would develop the business that they have today that is billions of dollars of revenue flowing through them by advertisers? Maybe, but that's not a sure thing. I mean, that's all uh, yeah, a lot maybe, of that is because not. of what Facebook had had done funneling all their existing advertisers there. I think that's true and certainly they helped accelerate it, uh, grow it uh, more quickly. But at a minimum, Instagram should have waited, you know, longer and then had a WhatsApp like yes. acquisition uh, at yes. a bare bare minimum. Um, yes. you know, and again, it's so hard to, you know, it's easy to armchair quarterback this now and hard <laughs> to be sitting in the seat of, you know, Kevin and Mike when they have a billion dollar offer in front of them. Um, yep. but this is the value. I mean, Sequoia has learned these lessons over so many decades and seeing it time and time again. So the other lesson that they take from Apple is what Don and Sequoia call an aircraft carrier approach that they start taking to these big markets. They realize, Don realizes, that Apple has created this PC market. And it's not just going to be Apple that's going to succeed in the PC market. They're going to usher in all of these other enabling companies that you need around the PC. So like Apple is the aircraft carrier, but you need all the destroyers and the, you know, uh, the ships around it and like all the planes on the ships and all that stuff. So they start financing component companies around the PC industry. Apple and Don help start a company called Tandon Corporation that makes disk drives. Uh, they are first investors in Tandon. Tandon goes public after a couple years, reaches a market cap of over one and a half billion dollars. This is in the early 80s. Um, a company called Printronics that makes printers, a company called Priam that makes disk drives, a company called Dyson that makes magnetic disks uh, for the disk drives. Uh, all told, I believe Sequoia ends up making about 15 investments kind of in this aircraft carrier strategy around Apple, and it drives much of their returns in these early funds. Some other notable investments that they make during the 70s and 80s. In 1981, they invest in a company called LSI Logic, which makes, you know, again, around PC and computing, they make storage and networking products. Uh, in 1983, so just two years later, LSI goes public in the largest IPO on the NASDAQ in history at that point, raising $153 million in the IPO, uh, which is, you know, I mean, $153 million. That's like a solid, you know, SoftBank size round today. <laughs> this is two years after Sequoia invested in the company. And it, yeah, inflation adjusted. I mean, that's in the sort of uh, 500 to a billion range totally. to, in the way to think about how much they raised. Totally. Uh, 1982, as we chronicled, they invest in Trip and Electronic Arts or Amazing Software in the beginning. They also invest in 3Com in 1982. Uh, folks might remember 3Com, uh, which was, uh, made networking gear and eventually bought Palm and, and the Palm Pilot. 3Com, I didn't realize, came directly out of Xerox Park. Uh, so that's the other thing that Sequoia, you know, kind of on the back of Apple starts doing is they start raiding Xerox Park and IBM's West Coast division and all of these old school East Coast companies that had been training these technologists and developing, uh, you know, advanced technology. And they just start commercializing them left, right and center. 1983, they invest in Oracle and also Cypress Semiconductor, both of which become massive successes. And then in 1980s... The one one point I want to make on on Oracle before breezing, because we, of course, we need to do an episode on Oracle and Larry at some point. But there's a crazy thing here that uh, Oracle went six years before raising money from, from Sequoia. And I think... 
they had bootstrap off of $2,000. And if you think about it, like Oracle was really one of the first true software companies. They were wildly capital efficient. And Larry was very outspoken against, you know, pushing back against this rising venture capital industry and uh, speaking all kinds of uh, ill tongues of, of the venture capitalists and what they do and come in and try and control companies and raid them, all these things. And of course, ends up partnering with, with Sequoia six years in, but uh, a very different start than a lot of these other companies, which required much more capital to get going. Yeah. And uh, the reason I didn't want to dive too deep into it is that I might be speaking a bit out of school, not having done the deep dive on Oracle and their history yet. But to jump in and speculate a little bit, I think part of the reason why <laughs> that Larry... Said. <laughs> that said, I'm going to speculate wildly. I think part of the reason why Larry was so anti-VC was VC was anti-software and anti-Larry. Like, this was like... They didn't understand. Don didn't understand software. You know, like, he was a semiconductor guy. All of these companies we're talking about, with the exception of EA, are hardware applications companies. And so... I don't think Oracle could raise venture capital when they got started. They were the first real, you know, real software company. It's the highest gross margin of them all, you know? It's, I know, it's, it, I know. It, it fits that thesis so well. But it wasn't, you know, the the venture world hadn't woken up to that just yet. Uh, they would, they would, and Sequoia would too, of course. But, uh, but so much of the DNA comes from this hardware world. The last kind of great and for Sequoia, certainly the greatest uh, hardware investment that they make is in 1987, Don invests $2.5 million in a little company called Cisco for 30% of the company. Started on the campus, uh, actually at the GSB at at Stanford, started on the campus of Stanford. Sandy and Len were... um, I can't remember which was which. One of them was the IT administrator for GSB and one I think was was elsewhere on on the campus. And networking was just becoming a thing and they were married. They were sending messages to one another and, and this is this amazing networks. romantic story that they had uh, had jerry rigged the network to be able to send messages to each messages other at to, work. I know. And amazing. that turns into Cisco. And that turns into Cisco. I mean, it just goes to show you how these companies start. And, and you know, Don, having learned the lesson from Apple of like, you know, hey, we'll finance Genghis Khan, you know, he doesn't care. Like most VCs would look at this team and be like, we're not going to finance this team. But he cares about the market and the application. At the time, there were no routers. So networks, like local networking <laughs> was just becoming a thing. But networking networks was impossible. And so Sandy and Len developed the first router and just, you know, such a brilliant, Sequoia still uses this example today of like the very, very best, most elegant expression, simple expression of what a company does. It's three words for Cisco. We network networks. That turns out to be uh, not just an enormous, enormous market, but really the enabling uh, technology for the yeah. internet. Cisco stock was the tracker for the internet hype in the in the dot-com era. I mean, it was like, if, if you wanted something that was emblematic of people's excitement about this new technology, it was Cisco. And so now we're in 1987. We're 12 years after the kind of independent constitution of Sequoia Capital. Don has learned all these lessons. He's not letting this one go. So... Not only does he fully finance the company uh, upfront uh, with two and a half million dollars, gets thirty percent of the company. The company then goes public shortly thereafter. Uh, I believe they raise one hundred and sixty some odd million in the IPO. Don stays on the board. Don doesn't distribute the shares. He remains chairman of the board. I think until the mid nineties, and they ride Cisco up and make enormous, enormous returns on this company. And that is that really becomes the playbook for for Sequoia Capital going forward. Amazing run. 
also just such a great example of like Sandy and Len weren't thinking about the internet. Nobody was thinking about the internet when they started Cisco, but uh, things just kept, the market kept evolving and kept getting bigger and expanding. And Don, again, you know, and Sequoia being so focused on the market, they knew that like, even though this company was public, there were still enormous returns to be had because the market was nowhere near penetrated. So alongside all these investments that they're making, the funds kind of steadily grow in size from that first fund of three to five million. It stabilizes at around 150 million per fund in the 1990s that Sequoia is raising every three years or so uh, and, and having that be their investment period. Along the way, though, of course, to do that, you have to not only build these companies, but you have to build Sequoia. <laughs> you have to build the firm. Uh, you can't do, you can't invest in all these companies and give them the time and attention that you need to do true early stage company building alone. So Don starts adding partners to Sequoia and, uh, and he talks about the process of doing this. And again, remember back when they start, like the, the number one requirement for being an investor, quote unquote, was going to Harvard business school, <laughs> uh, not Fairchild semiconductor business school. To be clear, investor in this sense was generally a public market investor or, or, or perhaps some other alternative investment, but not investing in startups. I mean, the, the Solomon Brothers folks probably looked at this more like gambling. Like what you're doing is an investing and you're not a, a person that looks like an investor. So what are we even talking about here? You know, I think that... that and the irony um, of it all is it's the exact opposite of gambling. It's building. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, so okay, so so Don has this great quote. He says, "Adding new talent was and remains a continuous process. Conventional education was never a high priority. You know, plenty of folks who've gone to Harvard and Stanford Business School, you know, worked at and, and work at Sequoia, but that's not what they look for. We look for people with functional experience in a startup, i.e., design and application engineering, product marketing, sales, aspects of outsourcing, manufacturing." Our investment decision-making process requires very self-confident people able to be challenged publicly. I look for people that are as far different as possible than I am because we do things here on the basis of consent among the partners. And I don't like having a homogenized set of opinions. Don wants people to be, he says, I want as much confrontation and different thinking as possible. And he wants people that are going to be confident and comfortable enough to put their thoughts out there and debate as part of the group. One of these lessons that Don's learned is that sometimes the most amazing companies like Apple, like Cisco, they look crazy. <laughs> and so you need somebody that's willing to see the potential behind the craziness and stand up for them. And oftentimes that's not folks who are coming from Harvard Business School. I believe the first partner, ironically, that joins Don at Sequoia uh, does come from the investing world. Uh, in 1979, Gordon Russell uh, joins, uh, joins Don. He had worked with Don at Capital Group. So he comes from Capital Group, comes in and joins Sequoia, and he builds Sequoia's healthcare and biotech investing practice. So kind of in parallel, uh, even from the 70s back in Sequoia, they're not only investing in technology and hardware and semiconductors, they're also investing in healthcare and biotech. Um, but of course, it's it's technology that the firm finds its its true success in and uh and in 1981 we mentioned pierre lamond earlier don convinces pierre uh already had an amazing storied career as a chip designer and architect at at fairchild and at national to come in and join him at sequoia as a partner and uh Pierre has an amazing run. He stays as an active investing partner at Sequoia for almost 30 years. 
And then, this is incredible, he moves to Kosla Ventures and joins Vinod uh, over at Kosla uh, in the mid-2000s. And then he goes and he joins Formation 8, and he's now, after Formation 8 at Eclipse, he is still an active general partner making and leading investments today. He just turned 89 years old. This is incredible. He was born, I believe, in 1930 in France. Uh, he is a true, true legend in the industry. But that's the kind of folks that you know Don is looking for, is people who are literally going to die in the seat because their, their lifeblood is building technology companies. Uh, and Pierre absolutely fits that to a T. So then in the late 80s, uh, two very, very important people uh, joined Sequoia from interesting backgrounds. So in 1986, a gentleman, a true gentleman by the name of Michael Moritz, now Sir Michael Moritz, who uh, was from the UK and had come over to America and had become quite a famous journalist for Time magazine. I believe he, he wrote um, a book on Apple while he was still at Time, right? Mm. The Little Kingdom, I think it was called. Sounds right. And that's how he gets really interested in Silicon Valley and technology and sort of the people behind Apple and venture capital. He leaves time and he starts a VC newsletter with the goal of he wants to break <laughs> into the venture capital industry. I remember my, what's Mike old is, is new again, <laughs> baby. Mike has never, you know, other than this VC newsletter company, he's never built a company or worked in technology in his life. But remember, Don's looking for these mavericks and he has a soft spot for people that kind of do things their own way. Don decides to take a chance on Mike and invite him into Sequoia and to join the partnership. And uh, that ends up being just an incredibly, incredibly prescient decision that leads to Yahoo and Google and That's many, so many crazy. great other companies. Does this, uh, does this count as how to hack your way into VC? Is this yeah. like a, the first example of... Start a VC That's newsletter. So insane. Yeah. That actually probably still work today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, think there's a quote about Moritz, which is, he had the journalist instinct to go for the jugular and not hold back. Uh, and a, a friend said that about him. David, we've started a podcast and have a, a love for media, but I, I have this sort of reverence for really good journalists who who not only are able to, to really tell a great story, but sort of get the truth out there. You know, it's it's a special talent for someone to be able to cover an industry and yet have their respect in this way. You know, we talked about the Socratic method of questioning that Don holds so dear. And I think this is what he saw in Mike. Uh, and we'll save a lot of this for part two of, of our Sequoia journey here, too. But um, but that's what Mike was so great at as a journalist. Uh, and, and Don actually says, you know, he says the two people that he's met in his life who are the best questioners are Mike and Steve Jobs. High company. The other very important person who joins Sequoia Capital in the late 80s is a relatively young, brash sales guy who comes from Hewlett Packard and Son that uh, also is an Italian immigrant, decides that he wants to work in venture capital. He just calls Don up one day, cold calls him and says, hey, I want to join Sequoia. <laughs> and if you know anything about the person that we're talking about, this is exactly in character. And this gentleman is Doug Leone, who today, of course, is uh, runs uh, all of Sequoia and all of their operations globally. And I, I believe would be the person that ultimately advocated for and took Sequoia into becoming a global firm. We're going to talk much more about both Mike and Doug next time on part two. But just to wrap up part one, which again is really, you know, the story of Don. And uh, I mean, you can't extricate Don not only from Sequoia, but from venture capital 
uh, and the whole industry in total. In 1996, after it had become clear that that Mike and Doug were amazing investors, and not only amazing investors, but um, had internalized all of these things that it meant to be Sequoia and then built on them themselves, Don does something pretty amazing. He literally hands the keys of Sequoia over to Mike and Doug. Doug talks about this in an interview with um, with Dan Primack and Axios uh, that um, I don't have the exact quote here, but he says, Don, one day in 1996, invited Mike and Doug into a conference room and he sat them down and he said, I'm giving this firm to you. And there are three things. One, you're going to run the firm. I'm not going to run the firm anymore. Two, you get to decide what I do. You can keep me around. I can continue making investments or I cannot. It's completely up to you. And then three, if you do want me around, here's the things I'm willing to do and not willing to do. But one of the things I'm not willing to do is run the firm. So like you guys make all the decisions about what's going to happen uh, from now on. And that's just like, even today, that's so rare. I mean, this is the first very successful, well, not the first in the industry, but the first successful generational transfer at Sequoia. Most venture firms and most founders of venture firms don't have the ability to do this. Uh, and it's so hard. I mean, Don created all of this and he's willing to say, you guys are the future. Change is part of not only what we invest in, but part of the venture industry too. And like, you guys are the people that are going to lead the change. It takes a lot to do something like that. It reminds me a lot of uh, um, another great venture firm that we may also cover Benchmark. It was a very different way of doing this. Very different, yes. But uh, you know, equal partnership. There's a great sort of uh, interview with Andy Ratcliffe and and Patrick O'Shaughnessy on um, uh, Invest Like the Best, where uh, Andy talks about how at the peak of their power, the original partners uh, handed us the keys. And I think it's a uh, while done very differently. There's there's definitely common elements between both of these these great firms. Yeah, and if you look at the firms that have managed to survive, you know, generation after generation and wave after wave of you know the technology industry and, and venture capital's evolution alongside it it's the firms that do this well the firms that don't don't make the transition and and don has a great quote about this he's you know uh, when sequoia was started the positioning was to lps was we're going to deliver vastly superior returns to anything else you can get out there and that proved well we'll talk about it in grading but i think that proved true but the positioning of sequoia is now two things and he says this uh, it's the stability that comes with generational transfer. He says the stability is part of why we have had the same limited partners for almost forty years. When Don was saying this, now almost fifty years. Uh, stability and returns is how Sequoia is positioned for the type of LPs that they're trying to attract, which are patient, very very long term capital. You actually need both of those things. Returns isn't enough. You need the stability that accompanies those returns, so that people will have confidence that like. Hey, you can get great returns, but if the firm blows up, then you're you're useless to me. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep. Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. 
Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Do we want to go into what would have happened otherwise? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so listeners, the the way that we want to do this section on this unique episode is uh, what would the world be without Sequoia? And there is a very Sequoia-centric view of the world, which is all of the technology industry looks very different. And without building this sort of aircraft's carrier strategy around Apple um, and and financing all of that um, in a very scarce capital environment like there was then, uh, we we may not have, you know, the Apple that we have today. We may not have some of the other tech giants that we have today. There's a alternative view that you could take to that that says, look, capital is capital. And the the the... 99% of the value or maybe maybe 110% of the value that comes from receiving investment from a venture capital firm is the capital itself and everything else is either hullabaloo or value detraction. And capital will always expand to fill all attractive opportunities. Exactly. Exactly. That we, despite some friction points, we live in an efficient market. And if it's truly a great opportunity, then capital will flow to, to go and fund that thing. And so um, the world would look no different today if, uh, uh, you know, if there was no Sequoia. Um, I think I fall slightly toward the former part of that scale. And I'm not willing to say that we, you know, we wouldn't have some of these amazing technology innovations without Sequoia. But I do think in just pouring over the hours and hours of reading that, you know, that we found about Don and and really learning about the history of this firm, Don played a very active role in, in building a lot of the companies that they invested in and deserves a lot of the credit for that. Well, listeners, let us know uh, how you like this uh, type of episode focusing on venture firms. Uh, we, of course, love it as uh, as you know venture investors ourselves. Um, but we've been talking all about Sequoia on this episode. There is really along the exact same timeline, there is a <laughs> perfect example of what would have happened otherwise, and that is Kleiner Perkins, which over this time frame that we're talking about was equally, if not arguably, more successful than Sequoia. But what's really interesting, and, and we'll dive into when we ultimately do an episode on, on Kleiner, their philosophy was quite different and uh, was a lot more interested in the entrepreneurs uh, and the backgrounds of the entrepreneurs than necessarily Don and Sequoia were. So I think, to my mind, what would have happened otherwise of course, Silicon Valley would have happened. Of course, the modern technology or modern venture capital industry and startup industry would have happened. You know, even though Don helped catalyze all of it, somebody would have. And 
certainly Kleiner would have and did. Uh, Kleiner Perkins would have and did. But I don't think there would have been as many chances taken and opportunities given to, you know, the quote unquote Ho Chi Minh's out there <laughs> that uh, Sequoia was willing to fund. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't just in those days. I mean, look at Airbnb in the early days and uh, Sequoia's extremely prescient early invest- investment in, you know, the three Airbnb founders they didn't look like what, you know, a prototypical founder looked like at the time. Far, far from it. You know, I think it's Sequoia and Don's DNA coming from a true, you know, incredible marketing background and markets focus uh, that, um, you know, maybe wouldn't have developed in the same way without Sequoia. Yeah. And one way to look at this is like, if you're the Kleiner Perkins in 1978, you know, you are uh, backing founders and outsourcing a lot of your judgment to them. And you're just saying you run, you know, obviously they weren't hands off, but you run the company. And uh, the reason I'm investing in you is because I trust you to, you know, figure out how to run this company. And what Don was looking at is, you're really onto something in this killer market. We're going to go build this thing together and I'm going to help you do that. And the, the the downside to that that we haven't painted yet is if you're a founder that believes that you need to be the CEO of that thing forever and, and you're <laughs> in a market that deserves a team to really go and, and value maximize the, the, the way to tackle that opportunity, like... It, the terms of these investments, especially at, at this time, were that, you know, often firms would own 33 to 51% of the company, they would have the right to buy the rest from you, they would have the right to replace you, they would have, I mean, all these rights. Of course, much of this still exists today. The job of a board is to hire and fire the CEO, but it was much more uh, prevalent back then, especially within uh, Don's view of the world is that um, I'm building this company uh, with you right now. And like this company may outlast your leadership. Well, the unspoken words in uh, Don's, you know, uh, quote uh, that we said earlier about management can be augmented is management, of course, can also be replaced. <laughs> uh, now, you know, there's upsides and downsides to that, right? Like if you're focused on, if your focus is building a great company, sometimes that's the right thing to do. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes, of course, Don and Sequoia would get that wrong, <laughs> but sometimes it is the right thing to do. Thinking back to our conversation with Trip and what attracted Trip and EA to Don was this knowledge. You know, you were getting what you saw with Don, and he was going to uh, force you to build a big company, one way or the other. You know, with you or without you. All right, we are in tech themes now, but to officially call it that and and uh, and move through it here, the thing that really jumped out at me, uh, and of course, you know, being in this industry, knowing folks funded by Sequoia, knowing folks at Sequoia, you 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 know some of this tangentially, but it's worth taking a fresh look when preparing for these episodes to really ground yourself in in what assumptions am I making? The thing that jumped out at me was Sequoia in all of their copywriting it never says investment but rather partnership it's not we led an investment you know it's not it's it's we decided to partner with that company and they have a, a statement on their website called their ethos which says we're serious about our work and carefully choose the words to describe it terms like deal or exit are forbidden and while we're sometimes called investors that is not our frame of mind we consider ourselves partners for the long term 
it immediately jumps out at me as, David, you so often say company builders. You know, we are partners and the way that we do that is we've got this, you know, huge fund that we manage that, of course, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our LPs to maximize the value. The way that we decide to partner is through investing in you. But, you know, we are your partners in this business. Five, six, seven years ago, I always thought that was when I heard we were so excited to partner with this venture firm on this thing. I was like, oh, God, here it comes. They invested money in you. Just say it. I finally am sort of like seeing, I think, what firms like Sequoia, and you can't really say firms like Sequoia because there's no firms like Sequoia, (laughs) but what Sequoia means when they say partnership rather than investment, it is a very different frame of mind. It's not, I'm looking for opportunities to get a multiple of my cash. This looks pretty good, so I'm going to throw it in and hope that I get a multiple out of it. It's for some reason, I believe that this is going to be a society-defining company in the next, you know, coming decades, and I'd like to be a part of that with you. Well, it gets back to, I think I've talked about on the show before, um, but when we were starting Wave, one of the first people we talked to was Greg McAdoo, who was a longtime partner at Sequoia and led their investment and initial investment in, in Airbnb and uh, and was on the board for many years and, and was a big part of the reason why my partner Riley joined Airbnb. And he said to us something that'll always stick with me. He said that doing venture extremely well and at the highest levels, early stage venture, it's all about alignment. And I think this is what, you know, through this history, we've told how Don and Sequoia came to understand what this alignment meant. The alignment is around building long-term, big, great companies. And so if your focus is that, you need LPs, unlike the original set of LPs who wanted a tax distribution and forced them to sell their stake in Apple, you need LPs who are willing to sign up for an essentially infinite, not infinite, but decades to multiple decades long time horizon. Because when there's true opportunity, the mass, the, the lion's share of the value gets built at the end. You know, Think about the run that Amazon's had or, or even Apple's had in the last 10 years in their market cap relative to the first 10 to 20 years of the company. So that's the LP aspect. But then to this company building aspect, like if you're truly aligned around that, you're optimizing for those outcomes, which means you aren't just like sitting on the side and letting things like play out, you are helping make the decisions and build the company and build the culture uh, that is going to enable a super long-term great company to be built like that. Uh, And I think that really is their ethos. Uh, Now that's, that's not the only way to do investing and we'll, we've talked about, and we'll talk about (laughs) many more on this show, but it's a really, really unique one that um, I think it's been cool doing this episode to see like exactly how this was developed. All right. My second, second tech theme is that it's called Sequoia, not Valentine Capital or Valentine and Co. and Valentine or Group. Perkins. Exactly. The way that Sequoia thinks about themselves is that Sequoia exists behind the founders. It's not about Sequoia; it's about the founders. Or no, it's no, it's or it's more importantly about the companies. Yeah. Um, and yeah, not the founders. <laughs> right, right. It's and and even more so, it's not about the person, but it's about Sequoia. So even when you pop up that one level, it's not hi, I'm Don and you know, uh I'm, you know, extremely public and loud and writing op-eds all the time and doing all this co- it's if you want to talk about the investment company, let's talk about the investment company and that's Sequoia and I happen to be a part of that, but you know, 
it's it's not all about me all the time. And it's interesting, you know, you talk to people and, and you say, do you think Sequoia's low ego? And people would say, uh, no, absolutely not. Like that, that is not the, not the way that I would use to describe them. But I think you talk to folks at Sequoia, you talk about companies that have been funded by Sequoia and they do take that very, very seriously where we're one of the best firms in the world. But it's uh, at this level, it's about the firm, not the not the partners. Well, I think it all comes back to this super long-term orientation. Like, you know, does Sequoia have ego around that? Of course they do. Go look at their website. Like, you know, <laughs> but it's all about long-term. It's not about like, look at this deal we just did. It's about like, look at this company that was built over decades uh, that we were part of. Um, and look at all of these companies and look at Sequoia itself, which we're going to get into much more in, in our next part of this uh, of this series here. So I tried to, for this section, kind of catalog and, and crystallize, like, what are the elements of, if you had to distill the Sequoia playbook from this history and from from Don's experience, uh, I think these are the these are the points that I would put in it. You know, one first and foremost, of course, is focus on the market, both the size of the market and whether the dynamics of the market will lead to rapid adoption by a new entrant. Second is that change equals opportunity. This also didn't make it as much into the history and facts, but Don has this great, great quote about this. So he says, one of our theories is to seek out opportunities where there's major change going on, a major dislocation in the way things are done. Wherever there's turmoil, there's indecision. And wherever there's indecision, there's opportunity. When it becomes obvious to anyone who reads Time Magazine that it's useful to have a disk drive on a computer, then it's already too late in the cycle to invest in disk drives. So we look for the confusion phase when the big companies are confused, when the other venture groups are confused. That's the time to start companies. The opportunities are there if you're early and you have good ideas, uh, which I think that is just like oh, such a perfect way to frame it. So hard to do in practice, but uh, a really perfect way to frame it. Next, I think is when you find one of those opportunities, don't get caught up in overly focusing on the team. Like, of course you want the team to be great, but like if the team doesn't look like a traditional team that you would pick from central casting to do this, like don't worry about it. <laughs> you better to pursue the opportunity and you can augment the team if they're receptive to working with you on it. That gets to the next piece, which is be a company builder, not an investor. You know, To really do this at the early stages, you got to dedicate the time and effort. You have to have a partnership with people made up of people who have actually built these companies, whether that's in their career as investors or their career as operators, but people who really know what they're doing and can help the companies make good decisions and recruit great management teams around them. Related to that, you can only do that at the early stages. Like Sequoia now, of course, and we'll talk about this much more, invests at all stages of a company's life cycle. But this type of company building investing that we're talking about, you can really only do it at the outset. Once once the DNA is set, and it's interesting, I think Sequoia used to have a, one of these quotes uh, on their website in their ethos section. I don't think it's on there anymore. They believe that the DNA of a company is set within the first 90 days of operation. And after that, it's really, really hard to change it. And having lived through that and now you know, making the whole focus of my investing at, at that stage of the market on YouTube and like... I completely agree with that. Just reflecting on how crazy it is that this asset class exists, we all take for granted that there's early stage fundraising, that like in mass, a couple million dollars are going to get deployed into ideas hundreds, if not thousands of times per year. And that there's a whole asset class of investors that are willing to do that. And now it makes sense 
because we've seen this, the handful of those become so, so valuable that, you know, you index the whole asset class and like, sometimes it overperforms, sometimes it underperforms, but like it, it sort of tracks other asset classes in terms of, of uh, risk adjusted return. It's a pretty special thing that it exists. And this is, this is probably an ethnocentric statement, but that it exists in our country. Like if you think about the impact that it has had on GDP, the access to early stage capital from a large group of people who it's their business to take a flyer and their business to underwrite a tremendous amount of risk by, you know, having a 20 plus company portfolio. I think it's a really good thing that that this system got created and that this type of capital is is available today. And surely it is not deployed in the best way that it could or certainly the most fair way that it could but the fact that it exists at all is is intensely value creative and and we take it for granted that it exists today and it's it's kind of mind-boggling how difficult it would have been to convince people at this point in history that they should plow money into it i mean gosh remember the solomon brothers meeting that we talked about (laughs) that don had you know one of the other reasons i was so excited to to do this episode is we deeply believe that wave something that I think Sequoia also believes in this history shows, which is, you know, you mentioned this asset class exists now and it, you know, you can have an index on it and it works because like, you know, a few companies out of these, you know, many, many seeds of small companies will get built into, you know, giant Sequoia like trees. That's true. But I think there's a, there's a, a faulty logic conclusion you can draw from that, which is that we should have an index fund on this because what this history illustrates is that that defeats the whole cycle like the reason that you know sequoia sized trees get grown from seeds is because of you know careful watering and feeding of them from people who are experienced gardeners who really know what they're doing you know <laughs> i really want you to change your twitter bio to experienced gardener <laughs> experience gardener. i love it i love it uh experienced forest keepers let's put it that way you know that's a big part of you know a change that we and i think you guys too like hope to be in the early stage ecosystem now is getting away from this like watering a million seeds and into like tending a garden yeah yeah, I mean, we thought long and hard about that with with PSL when we were first getting started. And I think uh, should we be doing sort of more companies? You know, should we be doing this in like an accelerator style way? And uh, I mean, we talked about the studio model on the LP show, but it's is very different, and it's it's much more concentrated bets. And um, I think Sequoia is a, a great example of, uh, especially you know, in the, the era that we're talking about, it of incredibly concentrated bets and and a lot of work into them. Um, after the investment. Yeah. Okay. So my last two uh, for the Sequoia playbook are, you know, <laughs> one, let your winners run. Everything we've been talking about, like if, you, if you've got something that's growing into a Sequoia-sized tree, like the, most of the growth is going to become after, you know, decades plus into the company, let your investment in them run. And then the last one, you know, which is what Don did that we ended history and facts on, which is <laughs> hand over the keys before you fall asleep at the wheel. You know, if you're running a venture firm, uh, so much easier said than done. All right. Should we move on to value creation, value capture? Yeah. Let's see. What's the best way to do this one? Well, one thing we talked about is we don't have the uh, exact data on the returns of Sequoia's early funds. Uh, we have a general sense from a few sources uh, that we can talk about. But compare that to, to 
how the NASDAQ performed over a similar point in time, which is kind of the closest you could come to like approximating uh, this type of investment as a, as an investor at this point in time. Yeah. And, and I guess what we're doing here is we're sort of rolling together value creation, value capture and, and, and grading to touch on what we do in the section with value creation, value capture. Normally when we're covering a company, we say, you know, Hey, Shopify, um, enabled $250 billion of sales or something like that. I can't remember the number, um, last year. How, how, how effective were they at actually capturing that value that they sort of created? I would say Sequoia has been, uh, um, surgically good at capturing the value that they that they create in the world um, with I think few misses. I don't think Don um, had any trouble capturing the value he created in the world. <laughs> well, I would say yes, yes and no. Certainly no in Sequoia today, <laughs> no. Uh, but I think it took them many years to learn, you know, how to do that. Right? Even Don coming from the background and the personal investing he did. I mean, you know, the Apple decision was such a huge mistake uh you know sequoia captured six million dollars of value from apple uh and you know lost out on dozens to hundreds of billions like uh so yes i think they, they i said few mistakes a few mistakes <laughs> <laughs> one very costly one but yeah i think that's i think that's fair the real testament here would be to ask the entrepreneurs that uh that sequoia worked with like do they feel the the successful ones that the value that sequoia and their limited partners captured from uh the value that was created at those companies did they as entrepreneurs feel that it was worth what they got in return acquired fm at gmail.com if anybody yeah. wants to email us <laughs> <laughs> well i think um we didn't ask trip that directly in the ea episode but i think he probably would have said yes right oh yeah yeah that was my i mean that that, that was definitely the sentiment i got from him good point we were mixing grading and and value caption value creation should we move on yeah to yeah so i mean grading the, the way that we traditionally do it for folks that are new to the show is uh big company buys little company and we have history as our guide was that a good use of capital by big company to buy a little company dave and i were talking before the show on how to uh, think about grading for this episode. And I guess the way we sort of landed on it is opportunity cost for LP capital. So what, you know, if you had just put money into um, the NASDAQ to try and, and do some technology investing, um, you know, from 1975 onward, sort of how how would that have looked? Just interesting to know the NASDAQ between 1975, conveniently when it was created, um, and 1990, grew about 6.5x with uh, a, a couple of pretty serious hiccups in the middle where it lost 30% of its value and then took a long time to to creep back up. So a stock market like any other. And so that's sort of the basis that that we decided to compare it to. David, how, how do you think Sequoia sort of stacks up against, um, you know, that, that public market accessibility? It's hard to compare exactly because we don't know the returns for any given fund, let alone all the dollars in aggregate. But I believe, based on some quotes from from Don and, and some of our research and, and other data we have, that Sequoia was probably averaging a 50 to 60% IRR on their funds during this period. So if you look, actually, I haven't done the math of what that would be over 15 years, but it's well, well, well above uh, 6.5x. And so now if you assume Sequoia is taking as carried interests, you know, probably in the early days 20 i believe now they're at 30 percent carried interest that they take on their funds uh so taking that out of the returns i still believe that you're performing 
Well, I believe you're performing much, much better than that. And uh, there's a great quote. Um, there was a Forbes profile uh, that they did on Sequoia in 2014. And uh, there's a great quote in there from um, the uh, the CIO at Notre Dame, uh, which is a, a great LP, one of the most sophisticated uh, endowments out there. And they say that um, Sequoia is the single best performing manager that they have had in their entire portfolio for the last 30 plus years. Uh, and that is across all asset classes, which is wow. pretty incredible. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> how do we assign a letter grade to this one? <laughs> well, I mean, it, clearly it's an A, right? Like, uh, I think the question is like, is this an A plus? I think it has to be an A plus, right? Like if we're uh, looking at a, a whole bunch of funds bundled together is like too difficult to like assign a single letter grade to, I, you know, I think like, were we looking at one that had, it was of significant size and had the highest IRR of all time, then we could go, oh, that's an A plus. Um, but like, it feels reasonable for me to say that like the first 15 years of Sequoia's existence were a, an A relative to other venture firms. I mean, yeah. The reason I make a case for an A plus is twofold. One, how much Don really was a part of inventing so many things about the way the whole, not just venture capital, but startup ecosystem works today. And two is, is that quote from, from Notre Dame. Now, you know, maybe there are other great managers that Notre Dame is not invested in. Uh, but, um, but man, to be the single best performing manager over 30 plus years in a marquee endowments portfolio, like <laughs> it's hard not to, uh, hard not to assign that an A plus. All right. I'll go with you. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, this has been a blast for us. Audience, hopefully you guys have enjoyed it too. Certainly hit us up in the Slack or acquiredfm at gmail.com if you have stories to share, thoughts, or other areas you want to see us dig into, especially on our continuing saga of telling the story of Sequoia from Doug and Mike, uh, well, their generation when they were coming up, then taking over and taking Sequoia into the now $12 billion plus dollar global growth behemoth that it is today yep would love your feedback all right carve outs carve outs let's do it uh you want to go first yep mine is an episode of the daily the podcast by the new york times uh from a few weeks ago called what american ceos are worried about they report on an event that happened last month where nearly 200 executives uh, got together at something called the Business Roundtable, which I didn't know was a thing. It's not like a governing body of any sort, but it's like a 200 of the Fortune, I don't know, 1,000 CEOs that get together and make proclamations. And um, one such proclamation that they made uh, this year was that they are going to not just think about their stakeholders, uh, their, their their only stakeholder as their shareholders, but also their employees, their customers, their community, um, a broader set of stakeholders. And in my head, the, the thing that first occurred to me was, well, that feels like illegal in some way. It feels like the purpose of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value. And I just have taken that at face value. Call me a capitalist, but like that, that is my understanding of, of, uh, you know, it's a relatively a, recent phenomenon. Yeah. And I didn't realize. And like, it got me thinking, cause I've always thought like, well, you should do all these other things you know, that's bending the rules of the company to to potentially sacrifice shareholder value to go and, and you know, 
um, do things that you don't think long term will accrue to shareholder value. So obviously, like you should be active in your community, and you should take care of your employees. But I always thought with this lens of like, oh, companies do that because it's going to accrue to shareholder value at some point. Um, And it's fascinating to number one, listen to this proclamation, and then they dive deep into exactly David, what you were talking about, the fact that it's it's a relatively new phenomenon, one that sort of uh, grew up in the 70s and 80s in the sort of professionalism of Wall Street and companies changing their bylaws to, to basically say, we exist to be a publicly traded security, and then we are at the sort of mercy of that. It's this interesting, if we actually drift this direction uh, that they brought up, it's much more a return to sort of the the business as a pillar of the community from the sort of early 1900s. And I'll be very curious to see if this sort of comes of anything and if this stirs more, more sort of similar yeah. sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, well, and, um, you know, definitely reflective of uh, <laughs> the times we live in, uh, in terms of uh, corporations and the, the world at large. So uh, I hope things go more in that direction. It's interesting to see we have one of our five portfolio companies is a B corporation. Do you guys have any B corporations? Oh, awesome. Uh, we don't yet, but we're super, yeah, super supportive yeah. of that. Yeah, it's been really cool to see that, um, you know, emerge as a, a way to institutionalize some of the uh, governance rules um, around this idea. We invest in B corporations as in C corporations, but um, uh, no preference necessarily for one or the other. But we're, we and many other VC firms are super open to it and supportive of it. Okay, my carve out, uh, as listeners may know, for some reason that I even I don't understand, uh, I use Amazon Music uh, instead of Apple Music or Spotify. <laughs> I'm actually, yeah, I'm definitely going to change that because Amazon does so many things great, but music is, is not one of them. But one thing that popped up on uh, the homepage of Amazon Music uh, last week, uh, which maybe is worth the whole thing, is I had no idea. Last week was the 25 year anniversary of Notorious B.I.G.'s first album, uh, Ready to Die. Uh, so, like, speaking of Mafia Dons uh, on this episode, man, Biggie, it's so good. And and uh, so Amazon did this cool thing where they have a bunch of tracks from the album, and then in between each track, they have like a commentary from you know journalists and people that were there, producers, Puffy, you know, everybody part of making uh, making Biggie's first album. Just listening to it all again, just man right like it's so good like you know maybe some of the content and uh, language he uses uh you know haven't aged too well but um but like he was so good like i've never heard anybody that can rhyme like biggie and just the music and the tracks and like what diddy did producing it like it was uh it, it really cool to rediscover and, and be listening to that over the past week david i love the incredibly eclectic collection <laughs> of carve outs that you have it's this like <laughs> you know, crazy place in France. It's this really hard to get through, you know, thousand page book that like, I will never have a prayer of actually go. And then, oh yeah, well, it's this, you know, it it really takes me back to when I was really into Biggie, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, well, the secret is I I keep a little uh, note in my Apple notes of uh, anytime something strikes me, I just put it in there as a potential future carve out. So. Oh, that's awesome. That's a good idea. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, 
they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower-cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. All right, listeners, thank you so much. Thanks to all the great sources that you can find in the show notes uh, for helping us um, research and put together this episode. And if you would like to either join the Slack, you can do that at acquired.fm or become a prestigious acquired limited partner, you can do that at glow.fm slash acquired and it comes with a seven day free trial yeah one quick note on the slack uh, we've got a couple questions about this recently um the slack is awesome you absolutely should join if you're not part of it yet the way to do it is go to our website acquired.fm and then on the home page there's a little button on the left hand side of the home page right below the main image click that and you'll get an invitation to uh, sign up and join the slack all right listeners we'll see you next time see you next time <laughs>